0: You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. This is Dr. Maral Ramahi reporting to you live from ACR Convergence 2021, the virtual version. I wanted to talk to you today about abstract 0572, which I found very intriguing. This was a prospective multicenter cohort of U.S. veterans with rheumatoid arthritis that were followed for 17 years for development of an incident major adverse cardiovascular event or MACE. This study showed that several cytokines and chemokines were associated with an increased risk of an incident MACE independent of traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors and independent of clinical RA disease activity. In addition to that, they showed that several cytokines and chemokines predicted MACE even if a patient had low disease activity or was in remission. This study just made me go, wow, I thought this was huge. And I also think that we need to do better uh, at cardiovascular disease risk stratification in our patients. And this study helps us realize that we have tools to come to that are on the horizon that we can use to help predict cardiovascular risk. This is Dr. Moral Al-Ramahi, reporting to you on ACR Convergence 2021. Be sure to check out roomnow.com for more coverage.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia, reporting live from ACR 2021 for RoomNow. I'd like to share a really interesting abstract, uh, abstract 957 from one of the plenary sessions today. And this abstract focused on vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids and the reduction of uh, autoimmune diseases. We know that vitamin D has been associated with reduced risk of several autoimmune diseases and omega-3 fatty acids decrease systemic inflammation. But this study was one of uh, the first in its kind Uh, being the first prospective randomized trial. This study was the VITAL study, which was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial where patients took vitamin D, 2,000 international units, and or omega-3 fatty acids, 1,000 milligrams per day versus placebo over a very long period of time, over five years. Uh, They tested the effects of vitamin D, and omega-3 fatty acids on the development of autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, polymyalgia rheumatica, autoimmune thyroid disease, psoriasis, and others. Um, They had over 25,000 patients randomized and found that patients who took vitamin D and or omega-3 fatty acids reduced incidence autoimmune disease by 25 to 30%. They also noted uh, a lower rheumatoid arthritis and polymyalgia rheumatica incidence. And they found that the effect of vitamin D appeared stronger after two years. I think a few take home points for this study is that it provided uh, us with information that we've been expecting and that we wanted to hear. It's very uh, promising that a such a good trial such as this um, you know, showed efficacy in terms of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids um, in reducing autoimmune disease. Uh, But a few things to note is that this study only enrolled patients who were uh, over 55. Um, So for our younger population, um, you know, perhaps the data can be extrapolated, but I think only time will tell. So thanks for tuning in for live coverage of ACR 2021. Please visit roomnow.com. And follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.
2: Hi, I am Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines, reporting for RoomNow at the Virtual ACR 2021. Battling this and misinformation is of utmost importance for us physicians even before the COVID-19 pandemic, but even more so at this time when available information may be conflicting or unverified. This information may cause undue stress to a patient and may potentially lead to irrational decisions or anxiety. Abstract number 880, entitled Health Information Use by SLE Patients Prior to and During COVID 19 by Dr. Francesca Cardwell and colleagues, was an insightful study which I wanted to talk about today. They conducted an online survey of Canadian and international lupus patients recruited from 15 research cohorts and five patient advocacy organizations. They had a large number of respondents. Lupus specialists and family physicians were the most preferred and trusted sources of health information before and during the pandemic, according to their findings. They were also the most frequently accessed health information source, although access decreased during the pandemic along with pharmacists and alternative care providers. Meanwhile, news and social media became more frequently accessed during the pandemic but was considered less trustworthy in both the Canadian and international respondents. Interesting to take note of as well is that international lupus patients increased access to health information through advocacy organizations during the pandemic, but became less in the Canadian patients. With the results of this study, it is reassuring to know that lupus specialists and family physicians remain important and trusted sources of information by lupus patients. It is not surprising though that social and news media have become increasingly accessed during this pandemic and social media really does play a huge role in providing the correct information regarding health. Just like what we are doing here at Room Now because we value the importance of providing relevant, up-to-date and reliable information through education. Telemedicine has also helped increase the accessibility of patients with their doctors. I would like to end by saying that physicians, including other healthcare providers, should ensure that we do, we do not just tell our patients what they should know, but we should also direct them to the proper sources of health information. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. Hi, this is
1: Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia reporting live from ACR 2021 for RoomNow. I'd like to share with you some of the best abstracts in spondylarthritis today, day two of ACR 2021. Uh, the first abstract is 902, uh, looking at imaging of sacroiliac joints in the spine to see if they differ in patients presenting with undiagnosed back pain and psoriasis, anterior uveitis and colitis. Um, overall, they found no difference in unilateral versus bilateral radiographic sacroiliitis and no difference in frequency, type or distribution of the MRI lesions in the sacroiliac joints and spine. So this is very interesting because it showed that overall imaging of the sacroiliac joints in the spine did not differ in psoriatic, arthriti- uh, psoriatic axial spondyloarthritis patients and axial spinal arthritis patients associated with iritis and colitis, and perhaps that we could use an umbrella term of axial spinal arthritis. The next abstract is 924, and this was the two-year open-label extension trial of mupaticidinib from the SELECT AXIS-1 study, and this looked at the efficacy and safety of mupaticidinib in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis. Patients were randomized, Uh, to hepaticidinib, 15 milligrams daily versus placebo in the original trial. And in this two-year study, 144 patients were studied. Uh, Results were similar at two years compared to 14 weeks in the original trial, including maintaining the ASAS 40 response. The MRI spark spine and sacroiliac joint scores decreased at 14 weeks and maintained at two years. There were no new serious safety signals uh, at two years. And again, infections were the most common adverse effects. There were no serious infections, uh, tuberculosis, uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, lymphoma, or non-melanoma skin cancers, or GI perforations. They did have one episode of a pulmonary embolism, uh, but that was in a female patient with a previous history of a lowered leg DVT with a history of smoking and obesity. Uh, There were also incidences of herpes zoster colitis, and uveitis. And lastly, there were some uh, mostly asymptomatic elevations of creatinine kinase. So thanks for tuning in for uh, live coverage of ACR 2021. Please visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at DrRBC.
3: Hi, Vivian. So I'm with Vivian Bykirk. This is At Room Now. I'm Janet Pope, a room reporter. Um, So Vivian, uh, it's lovely to talk to you again. And I'd really like to sort of pick your brain on if you were starting now, what would you want to know? So in other words, what advice would you give for young rheumatologists, maybe those who are going to be superb clinicians or academicians, uh, perhaps doing research, and just some background on you, you um, did rheumatology, and you were you did your epidemiology degree, of course, as well as rheumatology. And then you were doing clinical medicine, and then transitioned over to at that point in time, University of Toronto, and then the rest is history, Boston, and now in New York, leading early arthritis cohort, helping um, to lead a US uh, early arthritis cohort, and many other things, Flair, Act, um, AMP, etc. So what, what maybe top three things would you think about if someone's thinking about an academic life?
4: I think, I mean, you sort of hinted on the first part, get as much education as you can and get a sense of, you know, what is going to be meaningful in the line of research moving forward. So in my time, in our time, uh, there is a big emphasis on clinical research. So it was how to do clinical research and every, you know, all the um, aspects of measurement of of uh, phenotyping of of uh, trying to do adjusted models for observational research clinical trials in fact i did a clinical trial withdrawing hydroxychloroquine multi-center canadian study um, during my new residency. england yes. journal yes and was my trial. first intro to uh uh, it, trying to do a clinical trial in less than two years, because I was a fellow and John Esdell was my senior and mentor. Uh, and uh, and it's that's not easy. It's a little easier if you are working with uh, uh, many others on a trial and it's being run by professionals. Um, in other words, it's easier to walk beside a heavy wagon. Uh, the... Um, I had, you know, life circumstances change in people and um, a family member was dying. I had to move home and therefore home was not academic. So we went with community, uh, community practice. I worked my butt off. It's it was I've never learned so much, Uh, you know, and then the political environment changed and it was not meant to be for me. And as predicted, my, one of my mentors, Peter Tebble, said, you'll be bored at seven years, you'll want to go to academics. And that's indeed what happened. And I did. Uh, and, uh, and so that's when I got into early RA research because uh, I felt we were doing things way too late. And all my European colleagues, I was following their research and, and it was very clear that was the next direction. Um, I moved to the United States, again, family reasons, and, uh, and have a wonderful experience at the Brigham, and then um, in the past 10 years, a wonderful experience at Hospital for Special Surgery, uh, and have had many, many opportunities to lead projects, to start new projects, to, and even to move from the very clinical and observational research that I was trained to do to the translational research that I probably wanted to do all along because my original degree was in biochemistry. So it's been a, a really great journey. So what can I say as, you know, as Pearl, so to speak? I'm female, I had children, I made sure I spent time with my children. You never get that back. Uh, and that maybe slowed my track down a little, but in the end, you know, so why? worth it. Um, it's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, The uh, but and what I love now is men are taking paternity leave, it's becoming normal. So men do it too. It's worth it. Uh, The uh, my son in law is doing it right now. Uh, And then I would say that, you know, you do have a life so you have to go with your life. And then thirdly, pick good mentors and good sponsors. And uh, and that's how you can navigate the system moving forward. Um, and by that I mean sponsors are people who they know what you want to do and they will help it make it happen. Uh, mentors are people who are going to, you know, really foster your skill set or foster your actual ability to carry out your research, write it up, whatever. There are many aspects of mentorship, um, even how to develop your career, even how to write your resume, how to put in your promotion documents, it's all it's all a new step. You know, I, we used to say in medical school, I wish I could do this all over so I could do it. Right. Uh, and in a way I sort of feel like that now, but at least maybe many will get that chance to take those few pearls.
3: Oh, and I love the pearls. And I think that you're also implying that you have to work at yourself. You can't just, you said, choose mentors, get a sponsor. Um, you need to seek out actively. And I think that, um, many people start their career and think that they're like overstepping and I think not being aggressive but being knowing what you want and trying to get there um, in a positive way bringing people with you and they bring you along as well so not dragging anyone down and not putting anyone down but just saying look at we're in it together and as a team here's where I need to get and then serendipity I think along the way be, be I, open I've, to yeah. be open to change you pivoted I many find, times I
4: find yeah that now the whole concept of mentorship is becoming a formalized process in many, many institutions and, and take advantage of it from the beginning. Um, and you, it won't be just one mentor. We used to have one mentor. Now we have eight, nine, ten. Right, for different skills, different yep. times, different yep. skills. You know, it, it's. Uh, and people, I'm at the mentorship
3: phase now, and I love doing it. So
4: don't think people don't want to do it.
3: That's right. Well, listen, Vivian, it's always. Just wonderful talking to you. And thank you for giving up your time tonight uh, to really, I think, help the people listening where they can really get to the next level of where they want to be, the trainees, the young staff, et cetera. It's never too late to do what you want to do.
4: Right. Well, I agree with that. You know, I, I changed career. I did a shift at 40. That might be too classical, but that's when I did it. And I did a shift again at early fifties. So it you can do it anytime. And Absolutely. oh, work out, stay healthy.
3: Yes, <laughs> yeah, really we'll critical. have a life outside of outside <laughs> of medicine. That's always a good thing. It helps you think straighter when you're in medicine. Well, thank you so much, and uh, people, I'm I'm Janet Pope. So I'm at Janet Burdope if you want to follow me on Twitter. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you, Janet. Bye, bye.
5: Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist uh, from the United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR21 for Room Now. And today I have a great pleasure of uh, having Professor Oliver Fitzgerald, a key opinion leader in the field of uh, psoriatic arthritis, joining me here for a discussion about some of the highlights from ACR21. So, uh, Professor Fitzgerald, welcome to uh, this interview.
6: Thank you very much. And, Tony. Uh,
5: One of the highlights that we've seen at the ACR21 conference are the new therapies in psoriatic arthritis. And I was very interested to read uh, your work on um, the TIC2 inhibitor, Ducrabacitinib in PSA, uh, that is uh, POSTER 490. I wonder whether you could um, give us some key highlights from the study.
6: Sure, so um, the POSTER is a a product of work um, done on the phase two trial of ducravacitinib in psoriatic arthritis. And the the results of that trial were reported at the same session by uh, Philip Meese. So essentially, um, ducravacitinib is a highly selective um, TIK2 inhibitor, which um, in the phase two trial proved uh, to be effective for an, a number of the um, Uh, domains that are important in patients with psoriatic arthritis with duacrabazidinib resulting in improvements in both joint uh, and skin domains in addition to uh, domains like enthesitis, HACTI uh, and uh, some of the uh, patient-reported outcomes uh, were also uh, significantly improved in the um, treated patients as compared to the placebo-treated patients. Um, so a, a nice nice positive um nice positive study and I guess what this particular poster is focusing on are the effects of um ducravacitinib on disease markers and tyrosine uh, kinase two mediated pathways um, so um the initial um Um, markers that they were interested in looking at included um, those uh, mediating signaling of IL-23 and type 1 interferon, which are um, in particular targeted by uh, the TIC2 inhibitor. So IL-23 and IL-17 pathway biomarkers, such as IL-17A, BD2 and IL-19 were measured Um, as well as interferon-inducible chemokines uh, like CXCL9 and CXCL10. Um, Other inflammation pathways were explored, so IL-6, CRP and TNF-alpha, and then markers of uh, uh, joint damage and tissue function, uh, such as MMP3 and uh, C4M. So the um, study showed uh, that There were uh, significant reductions uh, in IL-17A, IL-19 and BD2 in patients treated with ducravacitinib as compared to placebo. Uh, So that was good. Um, That's what we expected. Um, There were also reductions seen in um, type one interferon inducible proteins uh, as compared to placebo. Um, And, Inflammatory markers uh, such as CRP, IL-6, and TNF-alpha uh, were also uh, significantly reduced in the treated uh, patients. So all of that was consistent with uh, what we expected with the mechanism of action of a TIC 2 inhibitor. Um, furthermore, the one of the things we wanted to look at was whether or not the um, ducrabacitinib affected um, uh, features like NKSL um, counts or hemoglobin, um, our uh, uh, lipid uh, profiles uh, such as total cholesterol, our liver function, um, all of which have been noted to be affected by uh, JAK1, 2 or 3 inhibitors. And the results of this phase 2 study would suggest that um, these uh, particular parameters were not affected by Ducrafacitinib. Uh, and if anything, there was a, um, a small increase in hemoglobin seen in the uh, patients treated with uh, Ducrafacitinib. So all that suggests is that this is a highly selective tic 2 inhibitor that doesn't appear to be uh, associated with some of the side effects that have been seen with other uh, JAK inhibitors, which is, which is good. Um, And other safety issues like herpes zoster and serious infections also were not seen in the phase two study. Now, this is a phase two study. Phase three is yet to come. Um, So we'll just have to see how that goes um, uh, when the phase three study is done. I look forward to seeing those data in due course. I don't know whether that explains the poster, Tony. Yes,
5: Yes, thank you very much. That is uh, very nice to see the uh, biological cytokine effect. And then correlating it back to, as you say, the some of the clinical outcomes. I think the selectivity we're learning about this new kind of agent, uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. We are a bit more uh, experienced in using jack inhibitors, um, and I think the selectivity. Do you think we will see that? And what is it? What do you predict in terms of uh, in the phase three? Do you think that that will come through? Um, obviously difficult to know without actually doing the study, but in terms of, um, say, for example, infection risk, that we are slightly more some concerns if the JAK inhibitors. Do you think we will see uh, maybe less of that with this?
6: I, I, I would anticipate that we will see less of it. And um, the uh, I think that relates to the uh, specificity of the uh, inhibitor for TIC2, and it doesn't seem to spill over to... Blocking uh, other um, Jak one, two, or three um, uh, 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 proteins, I guess, are not being affected in the same way um, as uh, with other uh, Jak inhibitors. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be hopeful it'll it'll work out well.
5: Which is would really be good news for our patients, and I suppose the patient selection will also factor into that, uh, whether they have. Other comorbidities or anything else yeah. associated with infection risk,
6: exactly, and that's that's obviously a, a big concern in some of the patients that we treat is that they do have not infrequently comorbidities that um, may determine which medication you might or might not use.
5: Yeah, so um, so a new a new therapy we look forward to phase three studies, and if you could think about these uh, patients, uh, do, you know, where would this treatment be? Sort of best place in. Uh, we have increasing number of uh, agents now to mm. use in serohetic arthritis. Yeah. Uh, if you had to kind of um decide on where best to treat them, where would you think this would fit, or could it fit anywhere along the pathway?
6: Um. Well, at this point, I don't think we can be specific enough with the information that we have as to which uh where this medication would best sit. Um. The fact that it it seems to be. Uh, in particular targeting the IL-23, IL-17 pathway would suggest that, you know, it may be effective in particular for those patients who have um, skin disease, um, axial disease. These are diseases that, you know, the IL-17 inhibitor appears to be uh, quite effective, but that's not to say that it, you know, might also be effective, particularly effective in patients who have uh, uh, bad joint disease. So, I, th- I think there's still, a, there's still a lot we need to learn about the medication.
5: Yeah, so it's uh, very nice to also see that there are other abstracts on the same agent, um, ducravacitinib looking at um, some of the uh, other sort of patient related factors, um, and also a sort of more holistic uh, assessment of the patient. So we do look forward to um, seeing more data coming up for this um, treatment. Uh, were there any other highlights for you at ACR21 uh, in terms of um, psoriatic arthritis?
6: Um, yeah, I went to a um, couple of sessions um, that that I found found certainly of interest. Um, one of the sessions of which I think we'll be hearing a lot more about is the use of uh, PET CT scanning. I don't know whether you 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 might have seen that one. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. in patients with psoriatic arthritis. I some f- fantastic um, images were shown of the uh, specificity of the, this PET CT for um, uh, areas of inflammation, whether it be in the, in, the, uh, in the joint or in the spine or in some of the images in the um, vessels that um, appeared to be uh taking up uh, the marker as well it was the ftg marker um so yeah and i think that's something that you know could could prove you know as was suggested by the presenter um see that um uh you know it could be useful in um picking out patients who are um you know who have psoriasis who may be in the process of developing psoriatic arthritis so um, that that could be one particular uh, benefit of using PET CT scanning, or it could be in following um, patients' response to treatment. And I think he had a, a nice a, a nice slide where um, the uh, activity showing on PET CT was downregulated by I think it was an anti TNF therapy. Um, so very interesting, uh, very interesting images, and I thought that was good. Um, yeah, it was a very
5: very interesting talk. Yeah. And I think it showed the burden of disease in psoriatic arthritis that a lot of subclinical disease is probably more than what we think. And I think that my takeaway from that was that the PET-CT could be used uh, in in terms of quantification of burden of disease. Um, And I think they made a comparison with ultrasound and the differences between the two. So clearly more, more work to come in this area yeah i mean ultrasound um, is great but you know, it needs to be yeah. focused
6: doesn't it you need yeah, to focus yeah. the ultrasound on the joint and, or whatever mm. you're looking at whereas this was looking at everything all at once so it
5: mm. looked look good
6: yeah sorry well, yeah you were well,
5: was to... assessment. yeah was there anything else uh before we kind of come to the end of our interview Were there any other highlights uh, that you'd like to share with us from acr21
6: um, well, I'm going to mention a uh, further abstract of our own, <laughs> um, okay. where, where we looked at um, uh, biomarkers of uh, radiographic progression. Uh, so this was a study we, we conducted with Lilly, um, and this was conducted by Grappa um, and uh, by ourselves at UCD and at Aturos, uh, which is a small spin-out company here in UCD. But what we did was we um, looked at, um, we compared, I guess, the uh, uh, proteins being expressed um, at baseline in a uh, small number of people who, whose disease progressed as com- radiographically as compared to those that did not and showed that there was a panel of proteins that appeared to be present at baseline that predicted um, progression uh, to radiographic damage. And I think that potentially uh, could be important as well. Um, so something that we will need to uh, follow up on with a larger cohort, but um, the ability to predict which patients are going to progress radiographically has been um, a, a goal of uh, grappa for quite some time. So this is perhaps making some progress in that direction.
5: Yeah, so that hopefully will get us closer to more personalized medicine in Precisely. terms of choosing our therapies and then kind of following them. And hopefully we'll get some candidate proteins from your sort of study to kind of target on in the future. Precisely. So thank you very much, um, Oliver. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, as always, um, on key updates uh, on psoriatic arthritis. So I'm Anthony Chan, and it's a great pleasure to have Professor Fitzgerald with us this afternoon. Thank you very much.
6: Thank you.